Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. Hello, everyone. I'm Julie, and here we have episode 275 of Forgotten Classics, where I have a book that I think a lot of people don't even know exists, 101 Dalmatians by Dodie Smith. Yes, we all know the Disney movie, movies. <laughs> but first, there was a book. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. Since I'm going to present you with a sampler about a book where we're looking for lost puppies, let's talk about a podcast you probably haven't heard of, and heaven knows I'd never heard of it, called The Lost Cat Podcast. That seems like a good compliment, doesn't it? Lost pets all round. The Lost Cat Podcast is a twice-monthly podcast detailing the things that have happened while searching for a lost cat, featuring monsters, ghosts, old ones, that's capitalized, some cats, several ends of the world, and lots and lots of red wine. All true. Written and performed by A.P. Clark. Now that's the description. I've listened to just a few of these, and I think the best description you could find is it's as if somebody from Welcome to Night Vale was looking for their lost cat, except it's much more focused and much more sinister seeming. A.P. Clark features a song each time that he sings and I assume writes. I haven't looked into it, but I really like them. On Welcome to Night Vale, which I've mentioned a few times before on my podcast, I tend to skip the weather, which is what they call a song. Here, I'm actually listening to it, so that's good. The adventures are great. They're well told. They, they just tap into that surreal, weird spot that a good storyteller can lead you to. It can be a bit difficult to find. It doesn't seem to be on iTunes. I'm putting a link to the podcast Libsyn spot, which is where you can download all the episodes individually. That's what I did. There are only 10 of them at this point, so it's not as if it's something that you're going to have a hard time doing. I actually discovered this because I was listening to a pseudopod, and A.P. Clark did the narration, and the podcast got mentioned, and that's why I went to look for it. So there's a little cross-pollination for you. Give it a try. Now let's get back to lost puppies. Well, kidnapped puppies. We all know, because we've all seen or been exposed to Disney's version of 101 Dalmatians, both animated and live action, that Cruella DeVille steals the 15 puppies of Pongo and Mrs., although I think in the movies they call her Perdita, to raise them to make fur coats from. That horrible person, of course. When I was in school, the Scholastic Reader, <laughs> which, you know, you could get all these great books from, came around and had 101 Dalmatians by Dodie Smith as a collaborative effort with the movie. And I got it, and it was the most enchanting book. Obviously, since a movie can't have as much as a book, there's more in it. And... I was mentioning this to my daughter, Rose, who's now grown up and living in L.A., and she said, I'd never heard of the book, but I saw it on your bookshelf one day, and I picked it off and started it, and I just couldn't put it down. I was so captivated by it. And I'd say that's the best testimony for how charmingly written this book is, how inventive, how clever. And so what I've done is I have read the first two chapters and then I've read a chapter of one of my favorite bits that was left out. When I was looking this up, it says that Dodie Smith wrote it in 1956, or it was published in 1956, and she secretly hoped that Disney would make it into a movie. Walt Disney read it in 1957 and instantly said, this is for us, we've got to do something with this. So everybody's dreams were coming true at that point. She seems to have gone along, had no problem with the changes they made to the story, and so that's all super. Now, I'm not going to stop and talk during the reading, but 
Chapter 9, Hot Buttered Toast, is the sample I have to show you what other sorts of things are in the book. And this is during the part of the journey where Pongo and Mrs. are following the twilight barking, trying to get to the puppies. So it's just on the way and part of the journey. Now, what actually moved me to get interested in reading this is that I was mentioning it to Scott Danielson, who I do a good story is hard to find with. And he and his daughter had never heard of the book. And then I mentioned that to Seth and Jesse at SFF Audio, and they'd never heard of the book. Well, if such well-read people have never heard of this book, it definitely has to be put out there. You can find it on Audible, where Martin Jarvis reads it. He's a much better reader than I am, so just take what I'm reading and imagine how wonderful that is. Your library may have the book itself just in book form, because since it's old enough, a lot of libraries actually have it. She wrote another book about Dalmatians called The Starlight Barking. And it sounded as if it went off into the fields of fantasy. Something about the dog star wanting to elevate dogs' roles in the world. I don't know. I've never been able to lay my hands on a copy of it. And I'm actually okay with that. I don't think I need to read it. But I did want to share this with you. So, I've talked for way too long. Let's dive in, and I'll meet you on the other side. One Hundred and One Dalmatians by Dodie Smith This book is under copyright. Go to the links provided to get your own copy or look at a used bookstore. It is a wonderful book. This is a sample. Chapter 1. The Happy Couples Not long ago, there lived in London a young married couple of Dalmatian dogs named Pongo and Mrs. Pongo. Mrs. had added Pongo's name to her own on their marriage, but was still called Mrs. by most people. They were lucky enough to own a young married couple of humans named Mr. and Mrs. Dearly, who were gentle, obedient, and unusually intelligent almost canine at times. They understood quite a number of barks. The barks were out please, in please, hurry up with my dinner, and what about a walk? And even when they could not understand, they could often guess, if looked at soulfully or scratched by an eager paw. Like many other much-loved humans, they believed that they owned their dogs, instead of realizing that their dogs owned them. Pongo and Mrs. found this touching and amusing, and let their pets think it was true. Mr. Dearly, who had an office in the city, was particularly good at arithmetic. Many people called him a wizard of finance, which is not the same thing as a wizard of magic, though sometimes fairly similar. At the time when this story starts, he was rather unusually rich for a rather unusual reason. He had done the government a great service, something to do with getting rid of the national debt, and as a reward had been let off his income tax for life. Also, the government had lent him a small house on the outer circle of Regent's Park, just the right house for a man with a wife and dogs. Before their marriages, Mr. Dearly and Pongo had lived in a bachelor flat, where they were looked after by Mr. Dearly's old nurse, Nanny Butler. Mrs. Dearly and Mrs. had also lived in a bachelor flat, there are no such things as spinster flats, where they were looked after by Mrs. Dearly's old nurse, Nanny Cook. The dogs and their pets met at the same time and shared a wonderfully happy double engagement but they were all a little worried about what was to happen to Nanny Cook and Nanny Butler. It would be all right when the Dearlies started a family, particularly if it could be with twins, with one twin for each nanny. But until then, what were the nannies going to do? For though they could cook breakfast and provide meals on trays, meals called a nice egg by the fire, Neither of them was capable of running a smart little house in Regent's Park where the Dearlies hoped to invite their friends to dinner. And then something happened. Nanny Cook and Nanny Butler met, 
and after a few minutes of deep suspicion, took a great liking to each other. And they had a good laugh about their names. What a pity we're not a real cook and butler, said Nanny Cook. Yes, that's what's needed now, said Nanny Butler. And then they both had the great idea. Nanny Cook would train to be a real cook, and Nanny Butler would train to be a real butler. They would start the very next day and be fully trained by the wedding. But you'll have to be a parlor maid, really, said Nanny Cook. Certainly not, said Nanny Butler. I haven't the figure for it. I shall be a real butler, and I shall valet Mr. Dearly, which will need no training, as I've done it since the day he was born. And so when the Dearlies and the Pungos got back from their joint honeymoon, there were Nanny Cook and Nanny Butler, fully trained, ready to welcome them into the little house facing Regent's Park. It came as something of a shock that Nanny Butler was wearing trousers. Wouldn't a black dress with a nice frilly apron be better? suggested Mrs. Dearly, rather nervously, because Nanny Butler had never been her nanny. You can't be a butler without trousers, said Nanny Butler firmly. But I'll get a frilly apron tomorrow. It will add a note of originality. It did. The nannies said they no longer expected to be called Nanny, and were now prepared to be called by their surnames in the correct way. But though you can call a cook, cook, the one thing you cannot call a butler is butler. So in the end, both nannies were just called Nanny Darling, as they had always been. After the dogs and the dearlies had been back from their honeymoons for several happy weeks, something even happier happened. Mrs. Dearly took Pongo and Mrs. across the park to St. John's Wood, where they called on their good friend, the splendid veterinary surgeon. She came back with the wonderful news that the Pongos were shortly to become parents. Puppies were due in a month. The nannies gave Mrs. a big lunch to keep her strength up, and Pongo a big lunch in case he should feel neglected, as the fathers of expected puppies sometimes do. And then both dogs had a long afternoon nap on the best sofa. By the time Mr. Dearly came home from business, they were wide awake and asking for a walk. Let us all go for a walk to celebrate, said Mr. Dearly after hearing the good news. Nanny Cook said the dinner was well ahead, and Nanny Butler said she could do with a bit of exercise, so off they all set along the outer circle. The Dearlies led the way, Mrs. Dearly very pretty in the green going-away suit from her trousseau, and Mr. Dearly in his old tweed jacket, which was known as his dog walker. Mr. Dearly wasn't exactly handsome, but he had the kind of face you don't get tired of. Then came the Pongos, looking noble. They could both have become champions if Mr. Dearly had not felt that dog shows would bore them, and him. They had splendid heads, fine shoulders, strong legs, and straight tails. The spots on their bodies were jet black and mostly the size of a two-shilling piece. They had smaller spots on their heads, legs, and tails. Their noses and eye rims were black. Mrs. had a most winning expression. Pongo, though a dog born to command, had a twinkle in his eye. They walked side by side with great dignity, only putting the dearlies on the leash to lead them over crossings. Nanny Cook, plump, in her white overall, and Nanny Butler, plumper, in a well-cut tailcoat and trousers, plus a dainty apron, completed the procession. It was a beautiful September evening, windless, very peaceful. The park and the old cream-painted houses facing it basked in the golden light of sunset. There were many sounds, but no noises. The cries of playing children and the whir of London's traffic seemed quieter than usual, as if softened by the evening's gentleness. Birds were singing their last song of the day, and farther along the circle, at the house where a great composer lived, someone was playing the piano. I shall always remember this happy walk, said Mr. Dearly. At that moment, the peace was shattered by an extremely strident motor horn. A large car was coming toward them. It drew up at a big house just ahead of them, and a tall woman came out onto the front door steps. 
She was wearing a tight-fitting emerald satin dress, several ropes of rubies, and an absolutely simple white mink cloak, which reached to the high heels of her ruby-red shoes. She had a dark skin, black eyes with a tinge of red in them, and a very pointed nose. Her hair was parted severely down the middle, and one half of it was black and the other white. Rather unusual. "'Why, that's Cruella de Vil,' said Mrs. Dearly. "'We were at school together. She was expelled for drinking ink.' "'Isn't she a bit showy?' said Mr. Dearly, and would have turned back. But the tall woman had seen Mrs. Dearly and come down the steps to meet her. So Mrs. Dearly had to introduce Mr. Dearly. "'Come in and meet my husband,' said the tall woman. "'But you were going out,' said Mrs. Dearly, looking at the chauffeur, who was waiting at the open door of the large car. It was painted black and white, in stripes. Rather noticeable. "'No hurry at all. I insist on your coming.' The nannies said they would get back and see about dinner and take the dogs with them, but the tall woman said the dogs must come in, too. They are so beautiful. I want my husband to see them, she said. What is your married name, Cruella? asked Mrs. Dearly as they walked through a green marble hall into a red marble drawing room. My name is still Deville, said Cruella. I am the last of my family, so I made my husband change his name to mine. Just then the absolutely simple white mink cloak slipped from her shoulders to the floor. Mr. Dearly picked it up. What a beautiful cloak, he said, but you'll find it too warm for this evening. I never find anything too warm, said Cruella. I wear furs all the year round. I sleep between ermine sheets. How nice, said Mrs. Dearly politely. Do they wash well? Cruella did not seem to hear this. She went on, I worship furs. I live for furs. That's why I married a furrier. Then Mr. Deville came in. He was a small, worried-looking man who didn't seem to be anything besides a furrier. Cruella introduced him and then said, Where are those two delightful dogs? Pongo and Mrs. were sitting under the grand piano, feeling hungry. The red marble walls had made them think of slabs of raw meat. "'They're expecting puppies,' said Mrs. Dearly happily. "'Oh, are they? Good,' said Cruella. "'Come here, dogs.' Pongo and Mrs. came forward politely. "'Wouldn't they make enchanting fur coats?' said Cruella to her husband. "'For spring wear over a black suit. "'We've never thought of making coats out of dog skins.' "'Pongo gave a sharp, menacing bark. "'It was only a joke, dear Pongo,' said Mrs. Dearly, patting him. "'Then she said to Cruella, "'I sometimes think they understand every word we say.' "'But she did not really think it. "'And it was true.' That is, it was true of Pongo. Mrs. did not understand quite so many human words as he did, but she understood Cruella's joke and thought it a very bad one. As for Pongo, he was furious. What a thing to say in front of his wife when she was expecting her first puppies! He was glad to see Mrs. was not upset. "'You must dine with us next Saturday,' said Cruella to Mrs. Dearly. And as Mrs. Dearly could not think of a good excuse, she was very truthful. She accepted. Then she said they must not keep the Devilles any longer. As they went through the hall, a most beautiful white Persian cat dashed past them and ran upstairs. Mrs. Dearly admired it. I don't like her much, said Cruella. I'd drown her if she wasn't so valuable. The cat turned on the stairs and made an angry spitting noise. It might have been at Pongo and Mrs., but then again, it might not. "'I want you all to hear my new motor-horn,' said Cruella, as they all went down the front steps. "'It's the loudest horn in England.' She pushed past the chauffeur and sounded the horn herself, making it last a long time. Pongo and Mrs. were nearly deafened. 
lovely, lovely dogs, Cruella said to them as she got into the striped black and white car. You'd go so well with my car and my black and white hair. Then the chauffeur spread a sable rug over the DeVille's knees and drove the striped car away. That car looks like a moving zebra crossing, said Mr. Dearly. Was your friend's hair black and white when she was at school? She was no friend of mine. I was scared of her, said Mrs. Dearly. Yes, her hair was just the same. She had one white plait and one black. Mr. Dearly thought how lucky he was to be married to Mrs. Dearly and not to Cruella de Vil. He felt sorry for her husband. Pongo and Mrs. felt sorry for her white cat. The golden sunset had gone now, and the blue twilight had come. The park was nearly empty, and a park keeper was calling, All out! All out! in a faraway voice. There was a faint scent of hay from the sun-scorched lawns and a weedy, watery smell from the lake. All the houses on the outer circle that had been turned into government offices were now closed for the night. No light shone in their windows. But the Dearlies could see welcoming lights in their own windows, and soon Pongo and Mrs. sniffed an exquisite smell of dinner. The Dearlies liked it, too. They all paused to look down through the iron railings at the kitchen. Although it was in the basement, this was not at all a dark kitchen. It had a door and two large windows opening onto one of the narrow paved yards which are so often found in front of old London houses. The correct name for these little basement yards is The Area. A narrow flight of steps led up from the area to the street. The Dearlies and the dogs thought how very nice their brightly lit kitchen looked. It had white walls, red linoleum, and a dresser on which was blue-spotted china. There was a new-fashioned electric stove for the cooking and an old-fashioned kitchen fire to keep the nannies happy. Nanny Cook was basting something in the oven, while Nanny Butler stacked plates on the lift, which would take them up through the dining room floor as if delivering the Demon King in a pantomime. Near the fire were two cushioned dog baskets, and already two superb dinners in shining bowls were waiting for Pongo and Mrs. I hope we haven't tired Mrs., said Mr. Dearly as he opened the front door with his latch key. Mrs. would have liked to say that she had never felt better in her life. As she could not speak, she tried to show how well she felt and rushed down to the kitchen, lashing her tail. So did Pongo, looking forward to his dinner and a long, firelit snooze beside his dear Mrs. I wish we had tails to wag, said Mr. Dearly. Chapter 2 The Puppies Arrive Cruella DeVille's dinner party took place in a room with black marble walls on a white marble table. The food was rather unusual. The soup was dark purple. And what did it taste of? Pepper. The fish was bright green. And what did it taste of? Pepper. The meat was pale blue. And what did that taste of? Pepper. Everything tasted of pepper, even the ice cream, which was black. There were no other guests. After dinner, Mr. and Mrs. Dearly sat panting in the red marble drawing room, where an enormous fire was now burning. Mr. DeVille panted quite a bit, too. Cruella, who was wearing a ruby satin dress with ropes of emeralds, got as close to the fire as she could. Make it blaze for me, she said to Mr. DeVille. Mr. DeVille made such a blaze that the Dearlies thought the chimney would catch fire. Lovely, lovely, said Cruella, clapping her hands with delight. Ah, but the flames never last long enough. The minute they died down a little, she shivered and huddled herself in her absolutely simple white mink cloak. Mr. and Mrs. Dearly left as early as they felt was polite and walked along the outer circle trying to get cool. What a strange name DeVille is, said Mr. Dearly. If you put the two words together, they make devil. Perhaps Cruella's a lady devil. Perhaps that's why she likes things so hot. 
Mrs. Dearly smiled, for she knew he was only joking. Then she said, Oh, dear, as we've dined with them, we must ask them to dine with us. And there are some other people we ought to ask. We'd better get it over before Mrs. has her puppies. Good gracious, what's that? Something soft was rubbing against her ankles. It's Cruella's cat, said Mr. Dearly. Go home, cat, you'll get lost. But the cat followed them all the way to their house. Perhaps she's hungry, said Mrs. Dearly. Very probably, unless she likes pepper, said Mr. Dearly. He was still gulping the night air to cool his throat. You stroke her while I get her some food, said Mrs. Dearly. And she went down the area steps and into the kitchen on tiptoe so as not to wake Pongo and Mrs., who were asleep in their baskets. Soon she came up with some milk and half a tin of sardines. The white cat accepted both, then began to walk down the area steps. Does she want to live with us? said Mrs. Dearly. It seemed as if the white cat did. But just then Pongo woke up and barked loudly. The white cat turned and walked away into the night. Just as well, said Mr. Dearly. Cruella would have the law on us if we took her valuable cat. Then they went down into the kitchen to receive the full force of Pongo's welcome. Mrs., though sleepy, was fairly formidable, too. There was a whirling mass of humans and dogs on the kitchen hearthrug, until Mrs. Dearly remembered far too late that Mr. Dearly's dress suit would be covered with white hairs. It must have been about three weeks later that Mrs. began to behave in a very peculiar manner. She explored every inch of the house, paying particular attention to cupboards and boxes, and the place that interested her most was a large cupboard just outside the Dearly's bedroom. The nannies kept various buckets and brooms in this cupboard, and there wasn't a spare inch of space. Every time Mrs. managed to get in, she knocked something over with a clatter and then looked very ill-treated. "'Bless me, she wants to have her puppies there,' said Nanny Cook. "'Not in that dark, stuffy cupboard, Mrs. Love,' said Nanny Butler. "'You'll need light and air.' But when Mrs. Dearly consulted the splendid veterinary surgeon, he said that what Mrs. needed most was a small, enclosed space where she would feel safe. And if she fancied the broom cupboard, the broom cupboard she'd better have. And she'd better have it at once and get used to it, even though the puppies were not expected for some days. So out came the brooms and buckets, and in went Mrs. to her great satisfaction. Pongo was a little hurt that he was not allowed to go with her, but Mrs. explained to him that mother dogs like to be by themselves when puppies are expected, so he licked his wife's ear tenderly and said he quite understood. I hope the dinner party won't upset Mrs., said Mr. Dearly, when he came home and found Mrs. settled in the cupboard. I shall be glad when it's over. It was to be that very night. As there were quite a lot of guests, the food had to be normal, but Mrs. Dearly kindly put tall pepper grinders in front of the DeVilles. Cruella ground so much pepper that most of the guests were sneezing, but Mr. DeVille used no pepper at all, and he ate much more than in his own house. Cruella was busy peppering her fruit salad when Nanny Butler came in and whispered to Mrs. Dearly, Mrs. Dearly looked startled, asked the guests to excuse her, and hurried out. A few minutes later, Nanny Butler came in again and whispered to Mr. Dearly. He looked startled, excused himself, and hurried out. Those guests who were not sneezing made polite conversation. Then Nanny Butler came in again. Ladies and gentlemen, she said dramatically, Puppies are arriving earlier than expected. Mr. and Mrs. Dearly ask you to remember that Mrs. has never before been a mother. She needs absolute quiet. There was an instant silence, broken only by a stifled sneeze. Then the guests rose, drank a whispered toast to the young mother, and tiptoed from the house. All except Cruella Deville. When she reached the hall, she went straight to Nanny Butler, who was seeing the guests out, and demanded, Where are those puppies? 
Nanny Butler had no intention of telling, but Cruella heard the Dearly's voices and ran upstairs. This time, she was wearing a black satin dress with ropes of pearls, but the same absolutely simple white mink cloak. She had kept it round her all through dinner, although the room was very warm, and the pepper very hot. "'I must, I must see the darling puppies!' she cried. The cupboard door was a little open. The dearlies were inside, soothing Mrs. Three puppies had been born before Nanny Butler, on bringing Mrs. a nourishing chicken dinner, had discovered what was happening. Cruella flung open the door and stared down at the three puppies. "'But they're mongrels! All white, no spots at all!' she cried. "'You must drown them at once!' "'Dalmatians are always born white,' said Mr. Dearly, glaring at Cruella. "'The spots come later.' "'And we wouldn't drown them even if they were mongrels,' said Mrs. Dearly indignantly. "'It'd be quite easy,' said Cruella. "'I've drowned dozens and dozens of my cat's kittens. "'She always chooses some wretched alley cat for their father, "'so they're never worth keeping.' "'Surely you leave her one kitten?' said Mrs. Dearly. "'If I'd done that, I'd be overrun with cats,' said Cruella. "'Are you sure those horrid little white rats are pure Dalmatian puppies?' "'Quite sure,' snapped Mr. Dearly. "'Now please go away. You're upsetting Mrs.' And indeed, Mrs. was upset. Even with the Dearlies there to protect her and her puppies, she was a little afraid of this tall woman with black and white hair who stared so hard, and that poor cat who had lost all those kittens. Never, never would Mrs. forget that. And one day she was to be glad that she remembered it. "'How long will it be before the puppies are old enough to leave their mother?' asked Cruella. "'In case I want to buy some.' Seven or eight weeks, said Mr. Dearly, but there won't be any for sale. Then he shut the cupboard door in Cruella's face, and Nanny Butler firmly showed her out of the house. Nanny Cook was busy telephoning the splendid vet, but he was out on another case. His wife said she would tell him as soon as he came home, and there was no need to worry. It sounded as if Mrs. was getting on very well. She certainly was. There was now a fourth puppy— Mrs. washed it, and then Mr. Dearly dried it, while Mrs. Dearly gave Mrs. a drink of warm milk. Then the pup was put with the other three in a basket placed where Mrs. could see it. Soon she had a fifth puppy, then a sixth, and a seventh. The night wore on. Eight puppies, nine puppies. Surely that would be all. Dalmatians do not often have more in their first family. Ten puppies, eleven puppies. Then the twelfth arrived, and it did not look like its brothers and sisters. The flesh showing through its white hair was not a healthy pink, but a sickly yellow, and instead of kicking its little legs, it lay quite still. The nannies, who were sitting just outside the cupboard, told Mr. and Mrs. Dearly that it had been born dead. "'But with so many, its mother will never miss it,' said Nanny Cook comfortingly. Mr. Dearly held the tiny creature in the palm of his hand and looked at it sorrowfully. "'It isn't fair it should have no life at all,' said Mrs. Dearly with tears in her eyes. Something he had once read came back to Mr. Dearly. He began to massage the puppy. Then he tousled it gently in a towel, and suddenly there was a faint hint of pink around its nose, and then its whole little body was flushed with pink beneath its snowy hair. Its legs moved, its mouth opened. It was alive. Mr. Dearly quickly put it close to Mrs. so that she could give it some milk at once, and it stayed there feeding until the next puppy arrived. For arrive it did. That made thirteen. Shortly before dawn, the front door bell rang. It was the splendid vet who had been up all night saving the life of a dog that had been run over. By then, all the puppies had been born, and Mrs. was giving breakfast to eight of them, all she could manage at one time. "'Excellent,' said the splendid vet. "'A really magnificent family. And how is the father bearing up?' The dearlies felt guilty.' 
They had not given Pongo a thought since the puppies had begun to arrive. He had been shut up in the kitchen. All night long he had paced backwards and forwards, and only once had he heard any news when Nanny Cook had come down to make coffee and sandwiches. She had told him Mrs. was doing well, but only as a joke, for she had no idea he would understand. Poor Pongo, we must have him up, said Mrs. Dearly. But the splendid vet said mother dogs did not usually like to have father dogs around when puppies had just been born. At that moment, there was a clatter of toenails on the polished floor of the hall, and upstairs, four at a time, came Pongo. Nanny Cook had just gone down to make some tea for the splendid vet, and the anxious father had streaked past her the minute she opened the kitchen door. Careful, Pongo, said the splendid vet. She may not want you. But Mrs. was weakly thumping her tail. Go down and have your breakfast and a good sleep, she said. But nobody except Pongo heard a sound. His eyes and his wildly wagging tail told her all he was feeling. His love for her and those eight fine pups enjoying their first breakfast. And those others in the basket waiting their turn. How many were there? It's a pity dogs can't count, said Mrs. Dearly. But Pongo could count perfectly. He went downstairs with his head high and a new light in his fine dark eyes, for he knew himself to be the proud father of fifteen. Chapter 9 Hot Buttered Toast It was wonderful how quickly the spaniel took in the story Mrs. poured out to him, for he had not heard any news by way of the twilight barking. "'Haven't listened to it for years,' he said. "'Indeed, I doubt I could get it now. "'There isn't another dog for miles. "'Anyway, Sir Charles needs me at twilight. "'He needs me almost all the time. "'I'm only off duty now because he's in his bath.' "'They were now in a large stone-floored kitchen "'where the spaniel had led Mrs. "'after inviting her to jump in through the window. "'He went on.' "'Breakfast, before you tell me any more, young lady,' and led her to a large plate of meat. "'But it's your breakfast,' said Mrs., trying not to look as hungry as she felt. "'No, it isn't. It's my supper, if you really want to know. I'd no appetite, and I shan't have any for breakfast, which will be served to me any minute. Tea's my meal. Hurry up, my dear. It will be thrown away if you don't eat it.' Mrs. took one delicious gulp. Then she stopped. My husband... The spaniel interrupted her. We'll see about his breakfast later. Finish it all, my child. So Mrs. ate and ate and then had a long drink from a white pottery bowl. She had never seen a bowl like it. That's an 18th century dog's drinking bowl, said the spaniel. Hand it down from dog to dog in this family. And now, before you get too sleepy, you'd better bring your husband here. Oh, yes, said Mrs. Eagerly. Please tell me how to get back to the haystack. Just go to the end of the drive and turn left. I'm not very good at right and left, said Mrs. Especially left. The spaniel smiled, then looked at her paws. This will help you, he said. That paw with the pretty spot. That is your right paw. Then which is my left paw? Why, the other paw, of course. Back or front? asked Mrs. Just forget your back paws. Mrs. was puzzled. Could she forget her back paws? And if she could, would it be safe? The spaniel went on. Look at your front paws and remember. Right paw, spot. Left paw, no spot. Mrs. stared hard at her paws. I will practice, she said earnestly. But please tell me how to turn left. Turn on the side of the paw which does not have a spot. Whichever way I am going? Certainly said the spaniel. 
The paw with the spot will always be your right paw. You can depend on that. If I turned toward you now, would I be turning left? asked Mrs. after thinking very hard. Yes, yes, splendid, said the spaniel. Mrs. then turned round and faced the other way. But now you are on the side of the paw with the spot, she said worriedly. So my right paw has turned into my left. The spaniel gave it up. I will show you the haystack, he said, and led her out through what once must have been a fine kitchen garden, but was now a mass of weeds. Beyond it there were the fields. Mrs. could just see the thatched cottages and the haystack. It's the only haystack, said the spaniel. All the same, keep your eyes on it all the time you run. I would come with you, but my rheumatism prevents me, and Sir Charles will need me to carry his spectacle case downstairs. We are an old, old couple, my dear. He is ninety, and I according to a foolish human reckoning that one year of a dog's life represents seven years of human life. I am a hundred and five. I should never have guessed it, said Mrs. politely and truthfully. Anyway, I'm still young enough to know a pretty dog when I see one, said the spaniel gallantly. Now off you go for your husband." You'll have no difficulty in finding your way back because you will see our chimneys from the haystack. Right or left? asked Mrs. Brightly. In front of your delightful nose. If I'm not here, just take your husband into the kitchen and I'll join you as soon as I can. Mrs. raced off happily across the frosty fields, never taking her eyes off the haystack and feeling very proud when she reached it without getting lost. Pongo was still heavily asleep with the bread and butter by his nose. Poor Pongo! Waking up was awful what with his sleepiness, the pain in his leg, and his horror at learning Mrs. had been dashing about the countryside alone. But he felt better when she had told him the news, which she did while he ate the bread and butter. And though his leg hurt, he found he could run without limping. "'Which way do we go?' he asked as they came out of the haystack. Mrs. looked worried. There were no chimneys ahead of her nose, because she was facing in exactly the opposite direction. But Pongo saw the chimneys and took her toward them. Just before they reached the kitchen garden, Mrs. said, Pongo, do dogs have spots on their right paws or on their left paws? That depends on the dog, said Pongo. Mrs. shook her head. It's hopeless, she thought. How can I depend on a thing that depends? The spaniel was waiting for them. I've settled Sir Charles by the fire, he said. So I've an hour or two to spare. Come to breakfast, my dear fellow. He led Pongo to the kitchen, where there was now another plate of food. "'Surely it's your breakfast, sir,' said Pongo. "'Had mine with Sir Charles. Don't as a rule take breakfast, but meeting your pretty wife gave me an appetite, so I accepted a couple of slices of bacon. Sir Charles was so pleased. Go ahead, my dear chap. I couldn't eat another bite.' So Pongo ate and ate and drank and drank. And now for a long sleep, said the spaniel. He led them up a back staircase and along many passages until they came to a large sunny bedroom in which was a four-poster bed. Beside it was a round basket. Mine, said the spaniel, but I never use it. Sir Charles likes me on the bed. Luckily, that's made up already, because John, he's our valet, is already off for his day out. Jump up, both of you. Pongo and Mrs. jumped onto the four-poster and relaxed in bliss. No one will come up here until this evening, said the spaniel, because Sir Charles can't manage the stairs until John gets back. The fire should last some hours yet. We always light up for Sir Charles to have his bath in front of it. No newfangled plumbing in this house. Sleep well, my children. 
The sunlight, the firelight, the tapestried walls were all so beautiful that it seemed a waste not to stay awake and enjoy them. So they did, for nearly a whole minute. The next thing they knew was that the spaniel was gently waking them. The sun was already down, the fire dead, and the room a little chilly. Pongo and Mrs. stretched sleepily. "'What you need is tea,' said the spaniel. "'But first a breath of air. Follow me.' There was still a faint glow from the sunset as they wandered round the wintry, tangled garden. As Pongo looked back toward the beautiful old red brick house, the spaniel told them it was four hundred years old and that nobody now lived there but himself, Sir Charles, and the valet, John. Most of the rooms were shut up. "'But we dust them sometimes,' he said. "'That's a very long walk for me.' The great window was lit by the flicker of firelight. "'It's in here we sit, mostly,' the spaniel told them. "'We should be warmer in one of the smaller rooms, but Sir Charles likes to be in the great hall.' A silvery bell tinkled. "'There, he's ringing for me. Tea's ready. Now do just as I tell you.' He led them indoors, and then into a large high room, at the far end of which was an enormous fire. In front of it sat an old gentleman, but they could not yet see him very well because there was a screen round the back of his chair. "'Please lie at the back of the screen,' whispered the spaniel. "'Later Sir Charles will fall asleep, and you can come closer the fire.' As Pongo and Mrs. tiptoed to the back of the screen, they noticed that there was a large table beside Sir Charles on which was his luncheon tray." finished with now, and neatly covered by a table napkin, and everything necessary for tea. Water was already boiling in a silver kettle over a spirit lamp. Sir Charles filled the teapot and put the tea cozy on. Then he lifted a silver cover from a plate on which there were a number of slices of bread. By now the spaniel had joined him and was thumping his tail. "'Hungry, are you?' said Sir Charles. "'Well, we've a good fire for our toast.' Then he put a slice of bread on a toasting fork. It was no ordinary toasting fork, for it was made of iron and nearly four feet long. But it was just what Sir Charles needed, and he handled it with great skill, avoiding the flaming logs and toasting the bread where the wood glowed hot. A slice of toast was ready in no time. Sir Charles buttered it thickly and offered a piece to the spaniel who ate it while Sir Charles watched. Mrs. was a little surprised that the courteous spaniel had not offered her the first piece. She was even more surprised when he received a second piece and ate that too while Sir Charles watched. She began to feel very hungry and very anxious. Surely the kind spaniel had not invited them to tea just to watch him eat. Then a third piece of toast was offered, and this time Sir Charles happened to turn away. Instantly, the spaniel dropped the toast behind the screen. Piece after piece traveled this way to Pongo and to Mrs., with the spaniel only eating one now and then, when Sir Charles happened to be looking. Mrs. felt ashamed of her hungry suspicion. "'Never known you with such a good appetite, my boy,' said the old gentleman delightedly, and he made slice after slice of toast until all the bread was gone. Then cakes were handed on in the same way. And then Sir Charles offered the spaniel a silver bowl of tea. This was put down so close to the edge of the screen that Pongo and Mrs. were able to drink some while Sir Charles was looking the other way. When he saw the bowl was empty, he filled it again and again, so everyone had enough. Pongo and Mrs. had always had splendid food, but they had never before had hot buttered toast and sweet milky tea. It was a meal that they always remembered. At last, Sir Charles rose stiffly, put another log on the fire, and then settled back in his chair and closed his eyes. Soon he was asleep, and the spaniel beckoned Pongo and Mrs. to the fire. They sat on the warm hearth and looked up at the old gentleman. His face was deeply lined, and all the lines drooped, and somehow he had a look of the spaniel, or the spaniel had a look of Sir Charles. Both of them were lit by the firelight, and beyond them was the great window, now blue with evening. 
We ought to be on our way, whispered Pongo to Mrs. But it was so warm, so quiet, and they were both so full of buttered toast that they drifted into a light and delightful sleep. Pongo awoke with a start. Surely someone had spoken his name? The fire was no longer blazing brightly, but there was still enough light to see that the old gentleman was awake and leaning forward. Well, if that isn't Pongo and his missus, he murmured smilingly. Well, well, what a pleasure, what a pleasure. Mrs. had opened her eyes now. The spaniel whispered, Don't move, either of you. Can you see them? said the old gentleman, putting his hand on the spaniel's head. If you can, don't be frightened. They won't hurt you. You would have liked them. Let's see, they must have died fifty years before you were born. More than that, they were the first dogs I ever knew. I used to ask my mother to stop the carriage and let them get inside. I couldn't bear to see them running behind. So, in the end, they just became house dogs. How often they sat there in the firelight. Hey, you two, if dogs can come back, why haven't you come back before? Then Pongo knew that Sir Charles thought they were ghost dogs, and he remembered that Mr. Dearly had named him Pongo because it was a name given to many Dalmatians of the earlier days when they ran behind carriages. Sir Charles had taken him and Mrs. for Dalmatians he had known in his childhood. Probably my fault, the old gentleman went on. I've never been what they call psychic nowadays. This house is supposed to be full of ghosts, but I've never seen any. I dare say I'm only seeing you because I'm pretty close to the edge now. And quite time, too. I'm more than ready. Well, what a joy to know that dogs go on, too. I've always hoped it. Good news for you, too, my boy. He fondled the spaniel's ears. Well, Pongo and his pretty wife, after all these years. Can't see you so well now, but I shall remember. The fire was sinking lower and lower. They could no longer see the old gentleman's face, but soon his even breathing told them he was asleep again. The spaniel rose quietly. Come with me now, he whispered, for John will be back soon to get supper. You have given my dear old pet a great pleasure. I am deeply grateful. They tiptoed out of the vast dark hall and made their way to the kitchen, where the spaniel pressed more food on them. Just a few substantial biscuits. My tin is always left open for me when John is away. Then they had a last drink of water, and the spaniel gave Pongo directions for reaching Suffolk. They were full of rights and lefts, and Mrs. did not take in one word. The spaniel noticed her dazed look and said playfully, Now, which is your right paw? One of the front ones, said Mrs. brightly, at which Pongo and the spaniel laughed in a very masculine way. Then they thanked the spaniel and said goodbye. Mrs. said she would always remember that day. So shall I, said the spaniel, smiling at her. Ah, Pongo, what a lucky dog you are. I know it, said Pongo, looking proudly at Mrs. Then they were off. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. I love that book, and hopefully my reading gives you an idea why, and you will seek it out for yourself, whether in audio or regular old book format. I encourage you to get the regular book because the illustrations are simply charming, not at all like the Disney cartoon, which some people love for its stylization, and some people like me, not so crazy about Anyway, some of you may be saying, wow, that was the shortest hiatus going away ever. In fact, it was not nearly as long as the one before you said there was going to be a hiatus. But I found myself continually earmarking things as I was reading them, thinking, oh, that would be fun to read. Oh, I'd love to share this with people. And so 
I think just being able to relax about my own internal pressure of having to get an episode out is very helpful. Also, several people wrote expressing their pleasure over the podcast, saying they understood, which was really nice to hear. And one person said, you know, I always liked those Lanyap episodes. So maybe if you felt like doing some of those, and although this is rather long for Lanyap, that's essentially what this is, this sampler. It also made me think of sharing other bits of books that inspired Disney movies, which you may not realize are actually books or began as books, which is Bambi. And that in itself started a huge copyright case. Disney did not behave well. Let's just say that. But, you know, they're kind of famous for not behaving well, especially back in those days when they wanted to push something. And Mary Poppins. More people may know about that because of the movie that was made with Tom Hanks and Emma Thompson called Saving Mr. Banks, which I have not seen. But it talks about Walt Disney trying to buy the rights for the book. So anyway, I may come back and read bits of those. Also, Jesse Willis from SFF Audio asked if I would sometime read a short story, science fiction and old, so full of adventure, and also a bit unusual. And I will be doing that sometime. As I say, part of the pleasure of (laughs) saying at least for myself that I'm on hiatus is just being able to do it when I feel like it. So sometime in the future, I'll come meandering back with an episode or two. One other thing, though, I've been re-listening to some of my favorite LibriVox recordings of books that I thought maybe I would read sometime. And I think what I might do is look at some of those since LibriVox makes them available to anyone. And I might run some of those through this feed Because since I started this podcast to try to force people to listen to books that I love, that I think are being ignored, that would be a wonderful way to do it. I myself don't have to read it. I can at least play the book for you. And so I'm kind of toying with that idea. As I say, these are all just kind of back of the mind. And occasionally I get time to get to the microphone and do them. So we'll see where that goes. And in other news, everything's just kind of swimming along. It's been nice, actually, not having the podcast pressure along with the other stuff. So the hiatus has been doing its work. I have been reading The Lord of the Rings very, very slowly so that I could talk on SFF Audio about a book at a time. And a book at a time doesn't mean the Fellowship of the Ring. It means the first of the two books that comprise the Fellowship of the Rings. So I'll put a link to the first one, which has come out on SFF Audio. Some of you may remember that about oh a year and a half ago or so, Scott and I and Seth discussed it on A Good Story is Hard to Find in a couple of mammoth sessions just discussing everything. This is an interesting way to do it because it's much more (laughs) focused. And so I see some of the same things, but it also encourages you to look a little deeper. And I'm really enjoying reading the book this way. So if any of you have a big book that you haven't read for a while, I encourage you to just very, very slowly read some of it in between reading other things. If you read as many books as I do, that's what I'm doing actually right now with Dombey and Son. I had read David Copperfield much faster than I thought I would when I was visiting my mother in Florida recently. And then I wound up going, oh, I must read some more Dickens. And I picked up Dombey and Son. And I've kind of hit one of those spots where I'm like, eh. I don't like where the story's going right now and everything. And it's nice just going, well, you know what? I'm not going to forget what happened at the beginning. I'll pick it up later and it will be wonderfully fresh then too. So there is that reading it slowly and just enjoying it for what it is and letting it wash over you instead of saying, I have to finish the book. So again, my recommendation to do that. And that's all I've got. I hope you enjoyed this. If you did, drop me a line, 
leave an iTunes review. As Heather Ordover at Craftlet has discovered, those reviews do absolutely nothing to make your podcast better known. But I'll tell you one thing they do. They make the podcaster feel like a million bucks. And if somebody else comes across it, it's nice to be able to read what somebody else thought about it. Have a great week, everyone. And I'll be back sooner, maybe, than you think. Bye-bye.